I wouldn't drink anything that was outside of a barn sitting in a bucket, personally. I don't care how good it was. No. I'd be like, no, I'm not doing that. I, sorry. No, sorry. I do. See, I'm a, I drink from the bucket. You drink from the bucket. <laughs> I drink from the bucket, I, yeah. History, I'd like to follow me down the rabbit hole. History, I'd like to frankly. And welcome to Hilf, history I'd like to fuck with Don Brody. I'm Don Brody. <laughs> Episode 14. Holy Hannah, I am so honored you are listening. And thank you to everyone who has liked and shared and reviewed our Bouncing Baby podcast. We are growing and flexing and having a blast, and we just could not do it without your ear holes. <laughs> now, as I record this, we are just about a month out from our first ever Hilf live recording. It's happening on May 26th, that's 2022, at the Glendale Reading Room in Glendale, California. It's the perfect space, you guys. Every wall is lined with books, little little fridge full of beer and white claw. You help yourself. And its capacity is like 41 people. It's going to feel like Wayne's World in there. <laughs> and my guest will be Rachel Scanlon, a comedian who makes me ugly, snorty laugh. And we'll reveal the subject we're fucking when you get there. Mm, I know, right? Links to tickets are in the notes on this episode and on our Instagram. But today, prohibition. It, it may seem unthinkable now. People considered it unthinkable at the time. But for about 13 years in America, alcohol was constitutionally banned. The 18th Amendment made criminal the distillation transportation, and distribution of alcohol. It was never, however, illegal to drink it. <laughs> An American-sized loophole, right? Now, Prohibition was a dark and exciting time. The birth of jazz clubs, speakeasies, and organized crime. A time none of us would return to, yet it remains in the top five party themes of all time. Oh, really? You don't have some photo booth photo of you and Pearls holding a Tommy gun? Really? <laughs> and speaking of pearls, girl, my guest for this episode is Bo Hufford. He is at the helm of three different podcasts of his own. So we begin our conversation talking a little podcast shop and playing with my sound effects buttons. <laughs> Welcome. Pull up a chair. Pour yourself a cup of hooch as we begin the hilf of prohibition. This is, we have the same, do you have the I same have the board? bigger version of that machine? I've seen, I'm so jealous of your big board. You've got all this stuff. <laughs> it's Here not about the, size. These are the only four sounds that I have. Ready? <laughs> right? We're that's back. great. That's one. That's okay. like a great one. Yeah. For your transition. Very funny. Is there the want want? Oh, Close. I, I have a wah, 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 and it, oh. it really does. It goes like that for a while. <laughs> so you can really, it's a long trail you can really wallow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, Bo Hufford, I finally, I done gotcha. I'm so glad to be here. I got you in my net. Holy moly. Now you and I have recorded before for your podcast. Yes. I have got a couple podcasts actually, but you were on Campfire Shit Show. With the incomparable Meryl Klima. Oh, God, yes. she's so fantastic. She's awesome. She's great. I really want to just like be in a baby Bjorn <laughs> around in Meryl's. A I just want her to carry me around in a little pot, <laughs> just between her elaborate bosom. And, and I don't think she'd object. She wouldn't. No. Um, so, Bo Hufford, you uh, are at the helm of a few different podcasts. Sure. So you've got the Campfire Shit Show. Yeah. Movie Cinema Film Club. Yes. Is that new? It is new-ish. Yeah. Uh, I do that with uh, these good people, Ian and Brittany. And every week we review a movie, but in our way. Sort of the way you do History I'd Like to Fuck. Uh -huh. We do that in MCFC. And it's oh. just like we range all types of different, you know, it's movies, cinema, film. Depending on if you're pretentious or a B movie, like we do it all. Yeah. And we do our take on it. We rate it. We have trivia questions. And so oh, it's, it's What a are fun... some of the movies that you've done recently? Gosh. Um, we just watched this 1932. 
to film pre-code, like pre where they changed the code of movies and said, you can't say hell, you can't show oh. divorcees, you can't have interracial relationships, no no gay stuff. They did that after 34, right? Oh. So we watched this movie called Merrily We Go to Hell. And it was all about, honestly, it's so funny, about an alcoholic couple oh. who end up having an open relationship. <sighs> and what that's like in 1932 is kind of an interesting thing. I didn't love the film. I'll be straight. I just I just made that sound like really appealing. You did. You made me want to watch it. I, I didn't love it because I felt like it broke some barriers of the time, but it doesn't hold up as a movie that you would want to watch again. But like I've only seen Schindler's List okay. once. Once. Because this is not a repeat viewing <laughs> film. I've only seen oh. Requiem for a Dream the oh. one time. But well, well, these I are movies that will ruin some you. Of the, they'll ruin you, but they're yeah. so good. That's true. So I, I, worth watching. My gauge isn't just to like rewatchability. It is like. You know, sometimes it's just a film is a great film and you don't need to see it again. I totally get that. You're, you're good. Yeah. But maybe Marilyn, we go to hell. It's better to, in theory. You can just tell someone about this great movie you heard yeah. about and save yourself the time watching it. And then Stuff I Can't Tell My Parents is yeah. another podcast. Yes. What is that one? Oh, man. This is, I'm really excited about this one because I have a business partner and he has a family and the daughter is 17 and I've known her her whole life. Okay. And there was a moment where we had a conversation where I was like, hey, if you ever need any advice or a lot of times when you're that age, 17, a 17 year old girl, it's like you have questions, but who do you ask? You don't want to ask Bo your Hufford, mom. You, yeah, you don't ask your mom or dad about like blowjobs or like uh -huh. weird drugs and shit like that. I think it's a weird conversation to have. Also, if you ask people, your own peers, well, they don't know either. They don't know shit, you know, at 17. So I was like, if you ever have any questions, let me know. And she's like, I do have a lot of questions. And she's like, also, I was thinking, I want to do a podcast. What should I do a podcast on? I'm like, well, here we go. We found it. We found it. It sounds creepy on the outside, a 46-year-old guy talking to a 17-year-old girl. Mm -hmm. But we know each other in a very family way. Yes. And, and sunshine is the greatest disinfectant. Yeah. Whatever you're talking about, everyone <laughs> is listening in. You're not like, come in here. And we're talking, this is our little secret. Right. So we talk about all kinds of things about like, she brings in questions every week and it's like, hey, are you afraid of being alone? Or mm. she did want to talk about drugs or porn or things like that that she has questions about. And we just kind of go through, it's a little bit of therapy. Mm -hmm. I think adults want to hear it for the reason that they want to know what kids are thinking. Kids want to listen to it because they're like, what, what's an answer I can get? What's a subject that I'd like to talk about, but I'm afraid to. Mm -hmm. So yeah, stuff I can't tell my I parents. I remember, that sounds so great. I can't wait to listen. I um, remember Dr. Drew and mm. Adam Carolla mm -hmm. when I was a little older. Well, no, I guess it was right between like 17 and 19. And there were, and Savage Love even, uh -huh. that you're sort of like, yeah, I don't know what that is either. And right. I, and like now, like I don't want that in my search history, girl. Yeah. <laughs> like I will talk about it on a podcast yeah. where we can like go back and forth, but like I can't have just like, how do you, well, I, everyone's Googled how to give a blowjob. Let's be right, honest. Right, right, right. Let's be honest. Or, or yeah, or a, an old-fashioned, as you call it in your world. Or an right? old-fashioned. Yeah, yeah, that's a hand job, actually. That's a hand job. <laughs> but yeah, you're exactly right. Now, the visual art, though, yeah. is your medium. So when you're not on yeah. a microphone and you're not on stage, you are a visual artist. Can you tell me about that? My main gig is I'm, I'm a designer slash artist, and I run an art company in San Diego. But we do travel the world doing live art for corporate and private events. That sounds like a lot, but it really comes down to like, let's say you're a company and you're like, hey, we're gonna have a party for our employees. We might, you might hire someone like me to come and do like a mural mm -hmm. while the party's happening or paint on a surfboard and have, you know, include people to paint with me, uh, that kind of thing. So I also started my art career in caricatures. So I used to draw oh, people. On the street? Did you do it on the street? No, I did it at, at theme parks and I yeah, kind of yeah. got roped into that and I didn't want to do it at a young age. I thought, I'm not going to be a carny, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. But then it turned into management. It turned into traveling. It turned into like, it's changed my life completely. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. The subject that you assigned me, Bo yes. Hufford. Prohibition. Yes. It was unequivocal. I mean, sometimes my guests, I say, you know, sign me a subject. They can be wishy-washy. They don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I give them a list of a few things that might be interesting. They pick one. You wrote me back like whip flash and you threatened me you said don't you dare do this subject <laughs> with anybody else tell me why well here's the thing um you know <laughs> i told people i was going to be on this show who listen they're listeners of yours and they're like what and, and they're like what are you going to talk about and i was like i picked prohibition and they were all like oh of course you did of course oh. you did and here's why uh a couple years back um my girlfriend Brittany, she and i had taken it upon ourselves to create a tiki bar in 
my apartment. Okay. And so over the course of several weeks or months, we planned, I drew up things, we bought all the stuff for it. And then uh, I would say over one weekend, I just went in and took this small closet about eight foot by eight foot. Actually, that's a big closet, Mm -hmm. but an eight foot by eight foot room and it has pocket doors so you can close it. And I just created this whole tiki bar in there. And so over those next couple years, you know, everybody comes over. They don't know it's there. I never told anybody it was there. And then as his friends started coming over, I was like, oh, let's go in here. And they're like, what? What do we do? And I'd open the doors and be like, what the fuck is this? So and so cool. it was pretty awesome. But because of that, I didn't really drink much before. I just liked the idea of it. Mm-hmm. But now over the last two or three years, and especially during all the pandemic shit, is like I'm shut in my house, but I have a full bar. <laughs> Things got a little wild, and I ended up becoming somewhat of a connoisseur of alcohol. Oh. And so I was like, you know what? There's a thing that I don't know about in our American history. Why did this thing happen? Mm. How was there a time that like people didn't want this? What? what where, where did we go wrong? You know, obviously, we were still drinking the idea of a speakeasy or, mm-hmm. or a hidden room. I call my bar the Sneaky Crow. And I just, <laughs> I, I kind of feel like there, yeah, there's a speakeasy out there in this. And it just brought this idea yeah. up. Like, I'd like to let, know more about that. Oh, well, it is a deep well. You have really, you have really done me and the listeners of Hilf a great service oh, because great. this one is a bright shining star. Awesome. I mean, capital F. And okay. I really don't know much, so I'm oh, excited. Oh, I'm excited. God. You know, I live to be the first to tell people <laughs> stuff. This is why I wake up in the morning. You'll never forget your I, first. I, <laughs> you will never forget. And if you do, it's okay. It's recorded. You can listen again. Um, well, it, the prohibition, this is one of those big subjects. I mean, it's like if somebody assigns you World War II. Yeah. You know, yeah. where you're like, well, come on. And, and he'll, Hitler did it. That's Hitler, it. That was it. He was a, he was a big guy. <laughs> you know, you, you, you know that there are these huge subjects. I'm not going to try to do like the the comprehensive full history of prohibition but i do want to say that the full comprehensive minute by minute history of prohibition is actually fascinating beginning to end That's it awesome. is a challenge for me to use a scalpel to cut anything out because i you know i would like to make this a 13 part series and we would go through but the good news is my betters and my predecessors have already done this beautifully for us and so if you really want the play by play of prohibition i have two great suggestions for you the documentary by Ken Burns on PBS, come on. Yeah. It's, I, I want to say it's six or seven hours long. Ken Burns does his thing. You zoom in. You zoom out real <laughs> slow. You get it all. Constant. You come out. Yep. And it's great. And you will get all the juicy details and you can really lick it off your fingers. Um, also, I wow. read this book. That's He's a saying, thick well, book. It, you're scared. I see you like reeling back. Like, what am I going to do with this thing? It's a 400 page book. Jesus. It is called Last Call The Rise and Fall of Prohibition by Daniel O'Krent. And it is just that it is the buildup. The crescendo, the day crescendo, and the repeal of prohibition. Um, I'm going to hand this book to you. I sometimes give my books to my listeners, but you can't keep it. It actually, as Great. you can see, is much loved and deeply I worn. That. Lots of notes, <laughs> but I am handing it to you because it's got great pictures yeah. in there, and so you can glance, you know, flip through and and check it out. So here is my plan, Bo. Here's what I'd like to do okay. as we fuck prohibition oh, righteously I'm, together. I'm, gonna, get right I'm gonna I'm gonna just do a real quick like brief overview. What is prohibition definition wise? What right. are we talking about? When? are we talking about then i'm going to jump into my favorite events people and stuff i'm going to talk about bootleggers i'm going to talk about law enforcement i'm going to talk about the speakeasies you know we're talking fuckable and then i'm going to tell you how it ended awesome how this crazy unlikely motherfucking thing the only thing more unlikely is that it would ever go away i mean this story just keeps getting crazier okay awesome all right, Bo Hufford, let's fuck. <laughs> mm, mm, okay, lesson one for a bad idea to succeed. It needs a good intention and a committee of assholes. Mm. Okay, here are the good intentions <laughs> behind prohibition. We were a bunch of drunks, and I mean the United States, yeah. pretty uniquely in the world, is your drunkest best friend. Like, we are drinking more than anyone else. We're drinking bad stuff that really kills you. If you've listened to the previous episode, the episode right before, the one you're listening to right now, is called The Whiskey Rebellion with Rashid Green. And I talk a little bit about our founding fathers and the early colonial period and how much these cunts were drinking, girl. (laughs) Like, have you ever heard of grog time, for example? No. 
So grog time in the Revolutionary War, instituted by George Washington, was that at 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. every single day, they rang a bell and everybody did a shot. What? They made four ounces of whiskey available per soldier per day. Four shots of whiskey per soldier per day was put into the fucking war budget that every single soldier got. I didn't know that. Yeah. And like some of the explanations for all of this excessive drinking are, you know, water, the water was bad. Like why did, you know, Thomas Jefferson wake up and drink a beer first thing in the morning? Because you couldn't drink a glass of water. It was, and I'm like, mm -hmm." (laughs) I mean, that is a hundred percent true. The water was bad. Not for these rich fucks. Right. They had gotten clean drinking water. They were fine. Also, um, it, it still doesn't explain how we were compared to everyone else who was also drinking, <laughs> drinking water. Um, and so people who came to the United States as tourists and from other countries remarked on it. You peruse the letters and journals of anyone who visited America during this time, and they're like, fuck, these fucks can drink. Wow. They drink all day. And it was bad, man. And it got so bad that by the mid-1800s, there is a, an alcoholic problem. I mean, if you look at even the way our popular culture represents like the Old West, you can't miss any story from the Old West without a dangerous drunk in the story. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like it's woven in there. And a lot of it was because it was these remote areas. It was a saloon was where people congregated. Once the railroads uh, got going, the brewers found it was a great way to and then they just build a bar so they were the distributors and the uh the the makers the distillers and the distributors of their own product so when a train would stop somewhere there'd be nine saloons because each saloon was owned by a different brewer and each saloon sold their own stuff and it just meant that there was a disproportionately high amount of alcohol and surprise you violent drunks so women are getting the shit beat out of them by mm. the and it's the kids are getting the shit beat out of them and so by the time you get to the mid late 1800s there is a coalition of people who are like temperance and that is the first goal Tem- we got to just throw a wrench into this mm-hmm. fan man and so people were going around preaching about it and um this Eliza Jane Trimble Thompson. Jesus. Eliza I already, Jane. I already don't like her. She's a, she wears a, she's a cunt. But she <laughs> has a cunt with good intentions. She, and she's, and the, more important than that, she's a rich, powerful cunt. With a rich, powerful, cunty husband. So people, it's not just like this random widow. She's right. like a, a figure in society. She goes to some lecture where the guy's like, dame and liquor. And she goes, you're right. And she gets the women of town to just go to the saloons and pray. They don't yell things. They don't, whatever. They just make a demonstration. They say, go home to your, this is awful. Don't you think you're making a terrible choice? And they pray, 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 pray. And it's like really effective in some places. And it takes off and women start doing it everywhere. There's another woman named Frances Willard in 1879. This bitch gets into the textbooks of schools. She somehow gets herself on the board where all of the public school textbooks have to be approved by her to see if they have incorporated the temperance message of the dangerous alcohol effects on the body. And she's making shit up. She included things like one drink of alcohol, you'll be sterile. You know, we're just like <laughs> random fucking, you know, when they were trying to tell us not to smoke weed right. in high school. Yeah. Um, and she said, I want to raise a generation of people who will hate liquor. And by that time, it wasn't hard. Almost everyone had a memory, something mm. that went wrong in their life because of it. And it was easy to, to make this touchstone. So this is like what's bubbling up in like the century previous. And it's getting momentum and it's starting to grow. And they'll start to be states are starting to pass a little prohibition laws and maybe three, two beer and you can't drink. Okay, so there's right. a bubbling thing. The committee of assholes behind these good intentions. Number one is the suffragettes. Suffragettes are not entirely assholes. They want the vote for women. And they start in part because when they go to places to talk about temperance and the importance of, of, they weren't even saying prohibition yet, just like handling liquor, they hit that ceiling really fast. Where they could speak, where they were allowed to go, how high of an office they were allowed to hold in these committees. So a lot of women started out in the temperance movement, realized I can't do shit because I'm a woman, That became their primary focus, and they became suffragettes who were really about the vote for women. They they, they may never have been interested in prohibition. They started as a temperance movement and moved off, but they shared DNA. Then you get the KKK joins in 
heavily with the prohibition cause when it starts getting vocal and and starting moving through the legislature. And the reason the KKK gets behind it is because they're fucking racists. And they're, of course, that's their dominant focus. (laughs) That's literally the only thing on their business card. Yeah. Um, But the KKK gets behind it because they hate immigrants. The, the racial group that they hate the most is not yet blacks because blacks aren't scary yet. Blacks are still in under their foot. They submit. You know what I mean? They're yeah. not there. They have this potential scary future of blacks rising up. But their biggest issue at the moment is these dirty Europeans with their accents. Hmm. It is an Anglo-Saxon Protestant versus trashy European Catholic divide. And it is vast. And we, from our perspective in history, forget the first person lynched by the KKK was a Jewish distiller. Hmm. They didn't like that these immigrants were coming in. And their their, uh, uh, observation was correct in the sense that most of the saloons and most of the brewers and most of the distillers were first-generation immigrants because this was one of the trades that they brought over with them. And New York wants it. It's thirsty, right? And like I said, with the railroads that are going out there, they're starting to feel that echo of like we're being taken over right the third uh in the committee of assholes is the anti-saloon league also known as the asl which is basically the kkk but it's less about overt racism and just a general this is sinful Hmm. you know they're putting a they're bringing the church into it they very blatantly like these saloons are just sinful it's prostitution it's gambling it's catholic it's immigrants we are anti-saloon whenever a saloon comes in it's bad news the anti-saloon league becomes the political arm of this movement and they are so fucking good at drumming up support and threatening people and lobbying um and they grow these nerds the asl came out of oberon college in ohio it was literally a bunch of teetotaling nerdy ass college kids who were like don't you just think liquor's the worst and we should put a stop to it everywhere wait a minute this is from oberlin yeah oberlin college yeah like like i lived very close (gasps) to that i grew up in ohio Ah! those motherfuckers those motherfuckers his name is wayne wheeler you know any wheelers no. Oh, good. But I know it's a, trash. it's a very liberal college. It <laughs> no. is. Back then it wasn't. Back when, but it, well, it was. I mean, because you really can't make this a Democratic or Republican issue. It was mm-hmm. so, I mean, you don't pass a constitutional amendment without agreement from both sides. Sure. Um, but there was another kind of subcommittee of the Committee of Assholes, which was the Social Democrats who had been pushing forever for an income tax. Hmm. They wanted an income tax real bad. And so their interest is like, we can finally start really taxing the rich. If we abolish the whiskey tax, like it will justify it because all of the money that we're getting from alcohol will have to find somewhere. So if we can pass an income tax, ah. we can. So these assholes are all together. And what this means, okay, and you got other loans. People who want workman's comp are going to the companies being like, you should be for prohibition because otherwise your employees get hurt and blah, blah, blah. Now we're passing workman's. You know, I mean, there's yeah. all of these, whether or not prohibition suits my minutia needs. But what it means is all of a sudden, If you are not for prohibition, you are an immigrant-loving, Christ-hating, woman-beating, un-American elitist. And it has nothing to do with how you feel about drinking or your own personal drinking habits. We just managed by 1919 to make that a fact. And doesn't that feel familiar? Uh Uh-huh. Man. Right. Everyone needs this ability to say, if you're not here, you're there. This category, you know, we all categorize everything. Oh, so you wear pink. So you're a girl. You know, it's like, no, not necessarily. Sorry. It it, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. And, And this is too. They really corner the market girl on cancel culture. The ASL gets in there and is like, you better start voting for prohibition and you better stop drinking publicly or we are going to financially back a candidate. Jeez. That will. And they did. And so the politicians had reason to get scared because the ASL had successfully unseated lots of people. And they were like, okay, whatever the, whatever the, I'll say whatever the ASL wants. I'll vote however the ASL wants me to vote. They had a propaganda machine churning out stuff in Ohio, millions of pamphlets for prohibition that they were distributing, that they were giving to politicians. I mean, it was, and they would, in their speeches, attack, attack, attack to get this constitutional ban on alcohol. Crazy, right? That's wild. So in December of 1917, Congress passes prohibition. They bring it to a vote. 
and they fucking pass it. And people are like, what? January of 1919, it's ratified by 36 states. Done. And that means that in January of 1919, the clock started counting down. Booze was going to be illegal by January 17th of 1920. That's when it went into effect. I, I, I just want you to stop for a moment and appreciate that year. And New Year's Eve. That must have been a fuck 1919. Party. In this book, it opens with yeah. a little story about oh, New really? Year's Eve, 1919. <laughs> and how batshit crazy I everybody bet. went. And how crowded everything was. And people were giving booze away. And people were, st- I mean, it was, is this real? What's going to happen? And when you pass something this fucking nuts, right? So broad. That it's then now passed to the lawyers to like, so what is an intoxicating mm. beverage? What are the fines? Who, you know, this is a state law and a federal law. So who takes care? I mean, it's a fucking beast for now the country to figure it out at that same motherfucking time. We just cut off a huge source of income. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So Andrew J. Volstead from Minnesota is the lawyer who's like, all right, here's the rules, right? What is intoxicating? It's 0.5%, which, by the way, made a lot of sauerkraut illegal. Shut up. There was sauerkraut that was technically too fermented. I could just see people doing shots of sauerkraut. I'm, I'm yeah. going to get yeah, drunk. Baby. Yeah, baby. I'm going to do it. Eight more. Eight more. I'm going to take a shit. Then I'm going to come back here. I'm going to do six. Every time the husband comes home with sauerkraut. You told me you wouldn't do this. I can smell it on The you. kids are crying on the couch. It's like, yeah. Daddy, no. <laughs> um, so, but this is the best part, Bo, because this is where we get into the loopholes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because we have other, by the way, constitutional rights that this is yeah. already butting up against. For example, search and seizure. You couldn't for a long time go into anyone's home or car ever. You could go in only into commercial businesses law enforcement could enter and they realized with prohibition they had to change that so there's one right the other one was double jeopardy um because you suddenly with state and federal crimes you could commit one crime and be tried twice for it so that was a question and then when they started wiretapping people were like that seems like invasion of so there were already this thing was just this huge bully in the constitution but here here were the loopholes okay one Legal booze, if it was made, transported, and stored before January 17th of 1920. Okay. Exactly. I just want you for a moment to put yourself in the shoes of our ancestors. Uh And these are the loopholes. You figure out what you're going to do. Now, if you're rich and you got property, girl, you have been loading in crates. And you are like, maybe it will never be repealed, but I have enough for my lifetime. Right. Okay. Right. Um. Then you have the homemade juice. You can ferment your own fruit juice, cider in particular. That's okay. Mm. That was a concession to farmers in the Midwest who literally have a bucket and a ladle with yeah. fermented cider by the door of every barn. Right. And we're like, this is happening. And they were like, oh, okay. <laughs> you can't make a bunch of it and ship it around and blah, but you can right. make it. Um, sacramental wines. okay okay yes there's a guy who had just planted a beautiful vineyard in california started a a a wine magazine in 1919 fucking shit now prohibition passes and he corners the market on the sacramental wine okay his name is de la tour and he sells sacramental wine to catholics and to jews he does kosher wine for jews and so he made a fortune at the start of prohibition um medicine uh prescription alcohol that's my favorite this was one of my favorite prescriptions i saw uh three ounces every hour for stimulant until stimulated shut up (laughs) that was the prescription (laughs) oh my god wrote on a script and you could go to a pharmacy and you could get an eighth of jack daniels or whatever with your doctor's note the government starts to catch on that boy howdy there's been a real bump yeah. in um yeah. in prescriptions people for are jack really daniels. sick out there yeah creme de menthe is a pers- really uh, medicinal creme de menthe this is fascinating <laughs> um so they could start to look into that and the physicians of course at this point have realized how lucrative it is for them to be writing these prescriptions sure. they have a medical meeting of the minds and all of a sudden 27 different uh, diagnosis is now cured with alcohol. They've figured out, including old age and asthma. (laughs) So take three ounces of whiskey until stimulated. 
because of your old age. Someone's having an asthma attack. Like, I just need a bottle. <laughs> I can't breathe. <laughs> I can't breathe. I'm having, I need a, a gin. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. And then the fifth loophole was industrial alcohol, right? Uh, what oh. is needed? Nobody's perfume and your toilet water I and see. your, and your what have you. Now, immediately you see the, the how folks are jumping through these loopholes, right? Um, for example, there was a Lydia E. Pickham's vegetable compound. Which you should take for the female predicament. The fe- What I love about the female predicament is it covers like menstruation and it covers like this bitch wife. Like, I need- wait a minute. They refer to it as the female, the feminine, the female predicament. Take what Lydia. A pr- what a predicament. E- because the predicament is I'm female and this sucks and we're sober. That's anyway, amazing. it was 20% alcohol. Lydia E. Pickham's vegetable compound for the female I'm predicament. So, I'm sorry, that sounds like that sounds like a cartoon name. I know that whole thing. I know, um, and the industrial alcohol. There's a redistillation process that it, it's kind of like you could minor in chemistry to do it, but it's basically take your toilet bowl cleaner, do your sciency voodoo on it, and it takes out everything but the alcohol that you can then, which is not good for you, and. Of course, there's lots of problems <laughs> with that. One of them is neurotoxins stay in, people die, they get brain damage. Oh, jeez. It's terrible. Okay, but those folks, these are just the people who even kind of wanted it to look like they were following the law. Right. These were the people who, you know, I can fit through that loophole, and technically I'm not a bad guy, technically. Maybe right. I'm not breaking the law. Um when we come back from our break, we're going to jump into the ones who enjoyed breaking the law. We're going to talk about the bootleggers. We're going to talk about the speakeasies. We're going to talk about the drinkers. And we're going to talk about both the good and the bad legacy of Prohibition. I can't wait. <laughs> it's fun, right? <laughs> now, this is our first season of Hilf, and we're having a blast. Just elated with the momentum that we've had and the ever-growing audience. It is thanks to you, listeners. We are so grateful. Um, we will end this season with episode 20 on July 20th, and then take a month down before we begin season two. As we prepare, now is a great time for you to reach out with your requests and suggestions. Do you have an idea for a subject or a guest? Let me know. Many of you already have, and I love it. Email us, hilfpodcast at gmail.com or Instagram at hilfpodcast. But, you know, you know that because you already... My friend Bo has brought over as a gift this 100-proof bottle of Old Forester mm. Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Yeah. And I'm going to open it. Oh, you pour, should. And I'm going to pour myself. Into I it. want you to. The lesson in part one was a bad idea needs a good intention and a committee of assholes. Lesson two, a bad idea can become a good situation for some people. But it's still a bad idea. <laughs> okay. So let's start with how obviously uh, bad of an idea Prohibition was. Yeah. I just told you. We already had bootleggers. They already done figured out how to do that. Also, other countries had tried this to various extents. Temperance and Prohibition. And it just isn't a great situation unless you have a completely totalitarian dominating regime that can actually just wave a wand and take something out of the economy. Um, But the way that other countries responded to our prohibition is worth mentioning for a minute. Scotland, for example, continued to deliver to America. They just started in all of their official books to call the United States, quote unquote, the scheduled area. So to be delivered to the scheduled area um, because they didn't want it to have written down and, you know, some plausible deniability in case anybody cared. And also it it reflected how they were doing it, which was basically fudging the books of dates. They just kind of danced around it. Canadians, of course, made gazillions of dollars and a lot of bootleggers found their feet in that dotted line between the United States and Canada. British shipping 
um, you know, you there was the three mile rule. You know, as long as you're three miles out from shore, you're in international waters and the, right. the rules of that place. So they would go up to three miles out, they'd get on a boat, and they'd get these Americans to come out, and they'd party on these British boats, and they'd go cruises to nowhere, just stay out there in international water, and then go on back home where no alcohol has actually wow. traveled. And it, be- and it became and generated this stereotype of the drunk American. Huh. Because anytime we were on a boat, we were just powering booze because we were desperate and there was a ticking clock right and liquor tourism airplanes little low-flying airplanes would go to cuba from with people from florida just to get drunk and then fly on home and the fact is for all of these countries they were like look we're not breaking any of our laws we don't we're you know what the fuck do we care there was in fact a famous interview with a scottish distiller named sir alexander walker he was asked was it possible to stop the import of your product to the United States during prohibition. And he said, quote, certainly not. And the interviewer said, you could not? And he replies, we would not if we could. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that really like sums it up. There are so many fucking fuckable bootleggers in this story, Bo Hufford. <laughs> like, for that being the case, please know that this bootlegger, the one, I, the one I'm going to tell you okay. about. Mm. <laughs> mm. The sexy bootlegger. Oh, girl, is there an ugly one? Maybe, but not for long. It's like if David Bowie wasn't a rock star, you'd be like, look at that weird guy with the eyes. Yeah. But because, you know, but then he starts singing, and you're like, mm. you know, like bootlegger, same thing. You're like, look at this guy with the weird hat, and then he's like, I have a crate. <laughs> Of rum, and you're like, son of a bitch, look at you. Uh, um, but did you listen to my episode about pirates? I didn't. I have a two-parter about pirates. If you haven't yet, and you're so inclined, you want to hear me clench even harder, listen to my episode about pirates. But it is partly why I chose this bootlegger, because he's the closest to a pirate. Mm. Okay. His name is Bill McCoy, and um, he is a gentleman. Meaning that by his own account and by all of the accounts of anyone who ever knew him and worked with him, he never bribed politicians, bribed cops, committed any acts of violence. He never watered down his product. He never added anything unusual to like flavor or make Mm. better his product, which is part of the reason why it was called the real McCoy. Mm. Could you get the real McCoy? And I want you to know, Bo, I did my historian's work on this one. (laughs) Is Bill McCoy the origin of the real McCoy? No. The phrase the real McCoy and that meaning you're getting the real deal, the proper stuff, actually originated before him. It's just serendipitous that his last name was McCoy. And it, you <laughs> he, know, we, he originally was making yachts for rich people. That was his job. Mm. And after prohibition starts, people start running out of money and income tax is happening. People are buying less yachts. He realizes I can just do this. I'm going to build a couple of boats. I'm going to buy a couple of boats. I'm going to figure out how to get them have excellent storage capacity. And he immediately started recognizing the wealth that was available out there. Not only are they not getting taxed, but they can charge whatever they want because people will pay whatever you ask for. Exactly. So he sets up such an extensive and successful rum running operation in the Bimini Islands in the Bahamas that it completely regenerates their infrastructure and their economy. And if you think I'm making it up, they have a brochure Okay, it is their economic brochure, which I'm like, what? Uh, Such a thing exists. And it says their entire infrastructure is because of the, quote, situation in the United States in the 1920s. Wow. Completely like, that's why we're here. And it gets so popular and other booze hounds and rum runners and distillers start to come to the Bimini Islands and utilize the Bahamas and they start upping their rates. So our buddy Bill McCoy is like, let's see. He goes north into the north atlantic into this tiny little island off the coast of canada called saint pierre it is teeny tiny it has like one port and like five people i mean it's super yeah but it's french Mm. it doesn't belong to canada it belongs to france and they speak french there and he's like i'm gonna do basically what i did in the bahamas up here in this little saint pierre he does to such a successful degree that St. Pierre becomes this kind of interesting, booming place. They literally still have houses that the residents of St. Pierre built with Cuddy Sark crates. Shut so that up. you can see a perfectly formed house and the shingles and the sides and everything. You can see the, the faded logo of Cuddy Sark on all of their That's amazing. walls. I know. Who doesn't want to go to St. Pierre, right? Like honeymoon. Ding. <laughs> um, 
He was eventually arrested. Um, <laughs> and, you know, everybody was. It was no big deal. And he said at his arrest, I have no tale of woe to tell you. I was outside the three-mile limit selling whiskey, good whiskey, to anyone and everyone who wanted to buy. My kind of guy. Oh, Bill McCoy. <laughs> um, and, of course, there's, there's the cops and robbers. Now we got the other side. Right now, before I go on, you mentioned last night that you overdid it on whiskey. I did. What is your preferred uh, beverage, uh, intoxicating beverage? Bourbon, bourbon and scotch. I, I'm a, you know, honestly, if I can have it, I'm a Laphroaig guy. I really, mm. I really like a smoky scotch. Mm. But my everyday, my morning drink is bourbon mm. for sure. Mm. And I, again, I've gotten into a, a bad. A bad case of the, hey, that's a limited edition or a single barrel or a barrel select from this place you can't get anywhere else. $100? I'll give you Let's do it. Let's do it. Please. I had to, I had to kind of like cut myself off because that's, that's like, it's like Pokemon. It's like adult Pokemon. It is. Yeah, gotta catch it, you know, it gotta is. get it. It's so <laughs> ridiculous. So we talked about the bootleggers. These are the law enforcement agents. Now, for the most part, you may have already ascertained this for yourself. I'm on the bad guys team. Just generally. If you're going to draw a line, you're going to be like, who, I'm like, come on. Who's, who's, got, who's got the best hat and the biggest gun? Like, yes. that's, my, that's my side. That being said, the law enforcement side is fucking fascinating. Um, we don't have the FBI yet. If you've listened to episode two about John Dillinger, I talk all about the formation of the FBI and how they pretty much created the FBI in order to get the man, John Dillinger. But at this point, we do have J. Edgar Hoover, but he is at the head of an organization called the Bureau of Investigation, or the boy, and <laughs> they, uh, and they're not very good at their job. It is part of the reason why it was the IRS that ultimately gets Capone, <laughs> because mm. the BOI is doesn't know what they're doing. Um, but here's my favorite law enforcement agent, okay? Her name is Mabel Willebrandt. She was the U.S. Assistant Attorney General from 1921 to 1929. She was not the first woman to hold this position, but she was the highest ranking woman in the federal government. Wow. And she was against prohibition. She would say right here with you and me and be like, bad idea, terrible idea. Yeah. We can't afford it. I don't know how we're gonna enforce this. What the fuck? But once it passed, it is in the Constitution. The fact is, Mabel Willebrand took an oath to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. So she is doing the hero's journey here, yeah. which is my job is to do my best to enforce this stupid fucking law. That's got to be a horrible place to be. With an impossible. And she's watching all these men who all outrank her, who probably treat her like garbage, who are corrupt and taking bribes and not doing their damnedest to uphold the Constitution. Mm. So in among other things, she's just really an island. Um, and she had a couple of wins. All right. In 1923, she breaks up um, what's called the Big Four, the, the Big Four in Savannah. Huge, huge bootlegging ring that was kind of hard to permit. She got him, got him, got wow. convicted. The Cincinnati, she got a huge uh, a bootlegger named George Remus was convicted because of her and her agents. Um, she had in one year 48,734 arrests. And of those 39,000 convictions, Jeez. so she did a good job. Didn't matter. But it didn't fucking matter. None of it made a goddamn <laughs> blip. Even in Savannah, 24 hours later, the exact same quantity of alcohol to the exact same clubs is being exact. Only maybe it's more poisonous and more expensive huh. than it was before. You, they, they kept trying to count their successes based on the number of arrests, but mm. they never really thought about who was getting arrested. They were never getting the guy, the top, the kingpins. Those were the really hard ones. And they'd be like, good news today, Jones. We had 10,000 arrests this week. And they were arresting the same five guys a thousand yeah. times. You know yeah. what I mean? Like it yeah. just, they were just swimming upstream. She eventually, she serves under like two presidents. Eventually when she retires, she gets fired actually. I think Hoover fires her. She's like, Fuck you guys. And her next job is as a private lawyer for a company called Wine Glow. <laughs> and what Wine Glow did was ship out bricks of dehydrated grapes in printed paper. On the printed paper that wrapped this brick of dehydrated grapes were the words Be very careful. This could be made into wine. 
to ensure, uh. <laughs> to ensure that it is not. Do not put this brick of grapes into three gallons of water. <laughs> Under no circumstances. How clever. Should you then add three cups of sugar. And then no matter what, don't put it in a closet for 17 days. <laughs> I mean, holy, wow, holy shit. Wow. I know. So we've covered my favorite bootlegger. We've covered my favorite law enforcement agent, my favorite drinkers. <laughs> the ones, the ones who are really keeping this shit going. Can we give it up for the drinkers? I mean, can I we can. give it up for the people who were like, I'm sorry, fuck you and fuck your laws. And also like watching other people say fuck the law that made you get so excited among the reasons prohibition had to be repealed. You can't just say fuck the law. Yeah. Right? That's why if it's a bad law, it's really, really bad. Not just because of all the debt and all of the violence and all of the mm -hmm. corruption, but because it makes people be like, fuck you and your dumb laws. Yeah. You know, everyone truly, everyone is drinking. And I say that like everyone has a cell phone. I know not, I know not asterisk lowercase italics, everyone has a cell phone. Right. And if you say, everyone has a cell phone, like, oh, excuse me, um, I actually, <laughs> my uncle has lived quite happily in his cabin with no, I get it. I know that I, it's not absolutely everybody. But when I say everybody was drinking, I mean that. <laughs> I mean everybody. In the city of Boston, there were four speakeasies on the same block as the police station. Wow. In Sheboygan, Wisconsin, there were 113 establishments licensed to sell soft drinks, and the only two that actually did went out of business. <laughs> In New York City, there were 32,000 drinking spots, and that is according to the police commissioner. What the fuck? That's amazing. I mean. That's amazing. Girl. I mean, all they did was make it cooler yeah and what really stuck a pin in it so it's passed in 1919 in 1927 we get our first film with sound so my friend who does the movie film cinema podcast okay <laughs> yes. the jazz singer yes right comes yes. out in 1927 it's a universal picture and it has sound. And this is a movie about a jazz singer in a nightclub in New York City. Right. Where there are dancers and drinking and singing. And in a, I mean, it's fucking nuts. There's black people in it. It's crazy. Right. And people across the, the country have their first taste of popular culture on a screen. Mm. We like that stuff. Yeah. We like seeing people in other places, especially in the United States, who are drinking and having sex and partying. And what happens immediately to us when we see that is we go, I wanna, ooh, ah, I need to pull up the hem of this skirt. I want, ooh, and then how do they do that thing with their hands and then they spin? Yes, I want that. And okay, you know who I am? And they go outside and they be like, I know I look gorgeous, right? Because I saw this gal on the screen and like I'm trying to look like her. It is, it is inevitable. It is immediate, okay? Wow. So the sexiness of a speakeasy and drinking and the partying is like a forest fire in the United States after the jazz singer comes out and it becomes even sexier. By 1929, they did something like a scientific survey and they found that drinking in the United States had gone down by 30%. Hmm. That's it. You can do a lot of things with that statistic and everybody did. The people, when that statistic came out publicly, the anti-saloon league was like, see? We told you. You're welcome. And everyone else was like, 30% girl. <laughs> you wanted to wipe it off the face of the earth here, and it's down 30%. And by the way, that's what you know about? Yeah. All these numbers I've just told you? Yeah. I don't but know. But Uncle Carl has a place down the street, and nobody knows about correct, it. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So we talked about the loopholes. We talked about the bootleggers. We talked about law enforcement. Here's how, though, the consumers were taking it in. Here's how you, as an average citizen, you maybe you had an uncle who ran booze. Maybe your dad had a bucket of cider in the, in the barn. But I'm talking about how you partied. Can I just say, also, I wouldn't drink anything that was outside of a barn sitting in a bucket, personally. I don't care how good it was. No? I'd be like, no, I'm not doing that. I, Sorry, no, sorry. I do. See, I'm a. I drink from the bucket. You drink from the bucket. <laughs> I drink from the bucket. I, the yeah. idea of a ladle going into a bucket that's mm -hmm. outside in a hay-filled barn with animals Ugh. and like flies. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm I actually. 
I'm good. I don't. I'm good. It. Yeah, I, I, that's probably. Fair. We're different but people. It's okay. It's okay. But you know what? Probably these people. You're in such a cesspool, little petri dish with these psychos. You know, you're all sharing the same. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're all sharing the same outhouse. And yeah. You're sleeping on the same nasty oh. sheets, and you're eating your your gruel with your hands. Like this is a this is a link I, in the I, chain. Girl. I would never have su- survived in this time. There's no way. There's I no think way. you'd be great. I think you'd be great. You'd just be a dandy. You'd just have to be. <laughs> You just have to be, you'd have to be in like a Manhattan penthouse. Which, which kind of makes me think that you think I'm a dandy now, so. <laughs> no, you're not a dandy. You're not a dandy, but you have a dandy, you're a descendant. You're a dandy descendant. A DD. You're a, you're a dandy, you're adjacent. Dandy adjacent. Um, but here's how, here's how me and you, here's, you actually, you tell me how you, where you would have fit into okay, these. Okay, okay. The speakeasies, we've talked about the speakeasies. Right. Speakeasies were the illegal bars. That serve the liquor. And as my friend Bo talked about his tiki bar mm-hmm. in his house that he built. Perfect example. What was it called? The Crow? The, the Sneaky Crow. The Sneaky Crow. So if this were 1920 mm-hmm. and you and your uh, friends had made a, a sizable enough amount of, of contraband liquor yeah. and you wanted to throw a party slash make a little money and somebody came up to the bar, right? You couldn't just open it up and be like, hey guys, I got a secret bar in my house, obviously. Right. So you and your people would tell everybody, come to this address. Knock on the door, and okay, and then we're gonna, you know, we're gonna open a little slit. We're gonna see who you who are. are. You? We're gonna yeah. see who else is around you. Come in, and mm. it's tiki, and there's a champagne fountain, and there's girls, and there's a jazz band, and it's a party, and it's great, right? Who doesn't want to go to a speakeasy? Still, many of the cities I love most have speakeasies. Yes, I live um, near Ventura Boulevard, and there is a unmarked door next to a bar that is very like you know this bar but next to it and it's an awning with just the numbers and there's no windows there's no neon yeah but if you know you go around you knock and a guy says hello and you say and it's fucking people love it there's a bar in minneapolis same you open a uh, uh, um you open a refrigerator door yep in a back alley and Uh it goes into one of the dopest bars in the city there's one in san diego it's a a door downtown it just says law offices of Mm. whatever and then it looks like a regular door, and then of course, there's a guy standing around or yeah. something. You know. It's also, like, if you've been to any themed party mm. in the last twenty years, there was probably a luau. Yeah. There was probably a right. Yeah. Uh, some sort of a Valentine's kissing booth, whatever. Yeah. And there's a speakeasy. There's a 1920s flappers speakeasy. We are literally a hundred years away from it. Yeah. And we just can't get over how much we love the little dresses and the thing yeah. and the feather and the guns and the. We just love the secrecy of it. We love it. Mm-hmm. Um, parties at home originated in the 1920s a cocktail party in your house because you would have if you had a home that in which you could entertain which was already a position of luxury it was a special event someone's coming home from something you Uh know relatives are here it's an event it's a holiday it's a religious thing just being like my five best friends come to my living room and we drink together was an invention of prohibition wow that's amazing amazing and a cocktail itself we had cocktails prior to Prohibition, but they became a real staple during Prohibition because, girl, you had to mix it. Ugh. This used to be something. Maybe it was toilet bowl cleaner or something. I don't know. And this guy said so he took it, right? Or it was on this boat for nine years. I yeah. don't know. But we're going to add some orange juice and a cherry. And Coca-Cola's stock went through the roof because Coca-Cola not only was a great mixer, but it was a great replacement. Wow. It was bubbly on your nose. And, yeah. Um, huh. NASCAR. NASCAR? We have, we have prohibition to thank for NASCAR because what? bootleggers had to get away from the law. Okay? And they <laughs> needed their cars. They had to modify their cars to go faster than any other car so that they could evade them. Wow. So they were the ones who figured out the spoiler to keep your your what tires the fuck? down. How what kind of tires went where? How to kick up dust on a corner and how to have that corner in just the right place so that anyone behind you was suddenly blinded and couldn't follow you even if they were fast enough. So at the end, when Prohibition was repealed, all of these gearheads, who they're part of bootlegging, their legacy within the Prohibition movement had nothing to do with alcohol, it was just how to get away, were like, shit. But they found that people were intrigued to watch them compete. So NASCAR is an invention of bootleggers and rum runners. That's insane. We have cruises. Just a cruise, a pleasure cruise. I want you to just think hmm. about what it was like to be on a boat Yeah. prior to 1919. If you were on a boat, it was bad. Huh. You were escaping persecution. You were going back to mourn your dead relatives in Europe. 
you had to go do some bullshit somewhere and you had to go on this boat, the boat where you were going to get malaria or it was going to sink or it was going to be taken over by pirates. There was nothing glamorous and wonderful and beautiful and exotic about being on a fucking boat. <laughs> Trust me. Prohibition was like, ah, but if you get on this boat. This pleasure cruise. And we go three miles out there, you can drink. <laughs> and we were like, you know what? You're right. But the boat part was actually great. But no one could convince you that just being on a boat was good until there was a something else going on. There. Yeah. But of course, <laughs> Prohibition sucks. And so <laughs> it has a bad legacy too. So here's some of the bad shit that we get from Prohibition. Um, tabloids. Oh. Who's dead? Who's drinking? Where's the party? Who got shot? What's Al Capone doing? Huh. It was because there's this law. Everyone's breaking it. And everyone wants to know. I'm breaking it. Who else is breaking? Who's? Oh, they got in trouble. It's. It was. Somebody knocking on my door. Hang on, one second. Oh, how perfect would it be if we got busted for something? Uh, I don't have I, any. I, yeah, I realize that you actually have a speakeasy in here, and they bust the. <laughs> yeah. No, I do. I do have two sex slaves in the back, but they. <laughs> but they love it. They're they're really glad to be here. They're uh, they're sealing the barrels. They're sealing the barrels downstairs. So if you hear something, they're sealing the barrels. That's what we said. That's what we made. Um, so the tabloids. The other thing we get, of course, is the mob. Organized crime. I mentioned Al Capone. Yeah. But there are all these other guys. Do you, do you know much about like, I don't, mob history? I don't know much about it. So Mayor Lansky, he was the accountant for the mob. He's mm. only 24. Longy Zwilliman, who was a big figure within the five families, he's dating Gene Harlow at the time. He's 25. Al Capone is 27. Wow. These big figures that we have legendary, by the time of The Godfather, they're all these like old patriarchs, are in their fucking early 20s at this time. Huh. And they're so much better at their jobs in law enforcement because they realize there's violence, there's competition, people are dying, people are killing each other's kids and stuff. So they get together in 1929 at the Hotel President in Atlantic City. The, the heads of the families in Chicago, Cleveland, Philly, Newark, and New York City, they're in their fucking 20s, Bo. And they establish among themselves where their boundaries are. They set their prices. They decide how they enforce competition, who can go where. They have their own little court. Because mm. they can't legislate any of this, obviously, legitimately, because everything they're doing is illegal. Right. They do the same thing in Seattle. They institute what's called the Roberts Law, which is, again, if you listen to my pirate episode, the Articles of the Gentleman of Fortune, which was the code of conduct among pirates, it was something akin to that. Wow. How prohibition bootleggers were to behave morally and ethically among each other. And of course, it, it doesn't, because you know, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, because when it falls apart, it's awful. I mean, it, you know, the, the violence and the blood and sure. the extortion and the corruption. I mean, it is rampant. It's all hitting the fan in the worst possible way by 1928. And this is another presidential election. It's now been around for almost 10 years, right? People are feeling the pain. These these dark forces are deeply entrenched. The law enforcement agents, they're so corrupt. Their stories all the time on the front pages of even the people who are supposed to be fighting it are now found in some saloon with some girl right. on his lap. Oh, geez, you know. So how do we finally get like free of this? And I found something so surprising, Bo, in this book and in this history. I remember when I learned about Prohibition, it was made very plain to me that the reason it started was because of women. Yeah. And I made it clear in this history, these these cunts with the books and the praying <laughs> outside of the saloons and their tight ass corsets and they hate fun. And yeah. But what I've never been told and what I learned for the first time researching this history for this episode is that it was the women who also brought it down. Wow. Her name is Pauline Sabin. She was an aristocrat. She was rich. She was elegant. She was calm. She was not on the cover of anything. Her husband was rich and elegant and calm. And she literally, and she had been pro, prohibition. And she kind of looked around the table at the Women's Republican Convention in 1928 and was like, let's just be honest. It's not working. In fact, it's really bad. You and I all know that young girls are now in nightclubs. They were not in the nightclubs before. We know that these organized crime, like, we're done. Like, prohibition didn't work. Yeah. And we have to repeal it. And they um, w started working hard way outside their lane. The, again, these are not these women were not suffragettes. These women were not active politically at all. And they have a lot to lose and they have very little to gain. And they really just kind of get like, fuck, 
Like we gotta, we gotta just stop this. It's bullshit. She leads the Women's National Republican Club, and they take a vote in 1928 on whether or not they are going to advocate for the repeal of prohibition, and they vote for it 1,391 to 197. She's a Republican. She votes for the Republican nominee Hoover. She goes to his inauguration, and at his inauguration, Hoover goes, "Prohibition's here to stay. We have to stop these crimes from being committed, and I'm going to double down on prohibition." And she's like, really? She very publicly leaves the Republican Party. She becomes very vocal. And all of the newspaper accounts are like, she's so elegant, she's so calm, she's so sweetly spoken, she's so clear. And she just keeps being like, this has to stop, like it's over. In the 1928 election though, when Hoover is elected and the ASL mistakes this presidential election for being this like huge, like, yes, everybody loves prohibition because the guy who ran against Hoover was very, uh, uh, what they called a wet. They were wets and they were oh, dries. Oh. And his name was Al Smith. And he had basically repealed prohibition in the state of New York. He had said it's, it's it, like California did with weed. Yeah. If the feds want to come in here, that's fine. But we locally are no longer going to enforce the prohibition laws. And as he ran for president, that was his platform. Fuck prohibition. Mm. And he lost to Hoover, mm. which is probably why Hoover was like, I'm doubling down on prohibition. And the ASL was like, yeah, see, you thought you could, st- you thought you could bring this pro, this amendment down. And we know it's here to stay. And this one guy says, quote, the light likelihood of prohibition being repealed is the same as a hummingbird flying to Mars with the Washington Monument tied to its tail. What? Okay, 1928. The ASL is like, we're instituting the Jones Law. The Jones Law is so punitive, Bo. It it starts to get like $10,000 fine and five years mandatory for your first offense. Wow. And the KKK fucking loves it because it's deportation for all immigrants' first offense. Wow. And they start going door to door in communities with pitchforks and torches, knocking over tables. And if you're first generation, you got a weird accent, and we find booze in your house, we take you to the port. We rip you from your children. Wow. And the prisons are full, and the backlogs in the courts, okay? We still don't fucking repeal this thing. Jesus. And then... Bohufford. October of 1929. Pop quiz. Oh. What happens in October of 1929? Oh, God. I don't know. Okay. Stormy weather. The stock market crashes. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. Yes, of course. The stock market crashes in October of 1929, and everybody loses their money. And we had sort of, kind of, kind of been funding things, kind of. On the income tax? Huh. Because we did have a lot of rich fucks, and they, we could, and we taxed the shit out of them. But they're all broke now, too. And, you know, and there's only, we, we are broke. We couldn't enforce these laws before. And so now, any state, any municipality who's being told by anyone, state or federal, you need to start, start spending money on going down to that farmhouse and seeing if anyone has any fucking cider in there is like, I'm sorry. No. No. We are dying and starving and rolling dead with our cows in a dust storm. So we don't care anymore. Franklin Delano Roosevelt is elected. And the 21st Amendment is just this. Fuck the 18th Amendment. They finally, in February of 1933, Congress and the legislature is so singularly focused on fixing this stupid fucking mistake. Yeah. They're like, the 21st Amendment is one of the most simple amendments that we've ever written. It was just this. As of right now, the 18th Amendment is repealed. They had two small subcategories. One was how to handle transportation for states that had chosen to keep prohibition. Mm. So the federal government was like, if that's your jam, that's fine. And then we're also going to say, we're going to ratify this by committee. Meaning we're going to convene committees in every state and their only thing is yes or no on prohibition so that we're not throwing in the things that derail a lot of bills today, which right. is why wouldn't you not vote for the Violence Against Women Act? And they're like, well, because there's something about streams and birds and fucking yeah. all that, you know, everyone puts all this stuff in it. So the first state to ratify it is Michigan. <laughs> Michigan's like, yeah, we're exhausted. It's so long to walk to Canada. Like, it's yeah. really close, but it takes forever <laughs> to walk to Canada. Fuck that. Um, Utah is the 36th state to ratify it in December. And it is repealed. It's that easy. The nightclubs in New York City literally say the only difference we noticed was that the agents had to start paying their tabs. Mm, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. The Budweiser Company debuts their Clydesdales 
As the repeal of prohibition takes effect, they load up their wagon with beer and head to the White House to give it to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, only to find his driveway is packed with other brewers (laughs) who had the same idea. That's amazing. And that, my friend, Bo Hufford, is the history. (laughs) The hilth of prohibition. That's amazing. That's amazing. Do you have any questions? Oh, I don't because, you know, like I had an, I had heard of the real McCoy mm-hmm. a little bit, in a, but you clarified it for me. Um, I just sort of can't believe it happened. It's yeah. one of those things where I, 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 even hearing, I'm like, it's so hard to get something done in this country. <sighs> and I'm sure it was back then too, for them to even pull it off. Things had to align pretty perfectly Yeah, for them to repeal it. Seems that it had to happen pretty perfectly too. And if these yeah. other catastrophic, catastrophic things hadn't happened, we wouldn't we wouldn't be sitting here today. Yeah, probably. I think the one thing though that everyone agrees on when it comes to prohibition is that it invented a youth deviant culture mm. that was our greatest export. Young people fucking around and because don't forget that the great gadsby the novel the great gadsby which is one of the most singular sort of impressions of that time is a contemporary novel it was written in 1923 during prohibition so it was kind of an observation of these like rich privileged protected people that were absolutely bucking the system and, and ignoring the laws and partying while these poor desperate people were being thrown in jail for something everybody else was doing it always works like that mm-hmm Fuck them. Fuck them. Um, well, Bo Hufford, I am so grateful to you for coming into my living room, for Gosh. bringing me this bottle of Old Forester Kentucky Straight Bourbon. I'm not going to have any more until three. Yeah, I, I think you shouldn't <laughs> because that's 100 proof and you'll be on the floor. It's 100 proof and I still have a child and she is my responsibility <laughs> for a later part of today. Um, but I do want to say thank you so much for coming here and thank you for assigning me this rich beautiful element of history. I am so grateful for the opportunity to dive into this stuff. I love what you do. It was so much fun to listen and thank you so much. Oh, and thank you, Bo Hufford. And thank you, too, for listening. And if you're itching for more, I've got a couple of suggestions. If you haven't already listened to my previous episodes, episode 13 with Rashid Green is all about the OG bootleggers from the 1700s who were making illegal hooch to dodge the whiskey taxes. Mm-hmm. Or you can move forward in history by going back, like, ooh, back to the future, <laughs> um, to episode two about John Dillinger. Not only does it tell the story of how the bootleggers of Prohibition became the bank robbers of the 1930s, but my guest is Kat Perkins. She was on The Voice, and she is the voice of my theme song. You caught yourself humming it. Right? Me too. (laughs) Now, in two weeks, we'll have a new episode, and it's wicked good. I am joined by comedian Alexander Malt to give the full health to the Salem Witch Trials. Oh, yeah. Ooh, get ready. It's, oh, right? Before we go, here is my buddy, Aaron Odom. I was a recent guest on his theater history podcast, and he is fantastic. I'll see you next time. Hey, friends, this is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming. If you like the Hilf podcast as much as I do, you'd probably like my show as well. I run a show called Euripides Eumenides, a theater history podcast. Yes, I know. Those are ridiculous words to spell. I'll help you out later. Now, for each episode, I invite a guest from the global theater community to discuss crazy stories from theater history, and my guest has no idea what we'll be discussing before we record. But we've covered a huge range of topics so far, from just how obsessed the ancient Greeks were with that certain part of the male anatomy why vampire musicals have never worked on Broadway, and the lengths to which people have gone to ban some of the most popular plays ever written. Plus, many of my guests have come back to record shorter episodes, which I call Theater Horror Stories. These are moments when, in live theater, things really start to go off the rails, but those involved put the old adage to the test, the show must go on. Euripides, Eumenides, a theater history podcast, both of those words start with the letters E-U. You should be able to find it after that. You can find them wherever you get your podcasts.